Scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you in your hand. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to one of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, Is it because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys? So they went up to the man of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack and our money in full weight. So we brought it again in our hand and we have brought our money. We have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. But they heard 
that he should eat bread there. When Joseph came to the house, they brought into the house to him the present that they had in their hand and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the bread. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we again thank you for the holy scriptures that you have given unto us. And may you direct our faith to see Christ clearly, to understand who we are in him and our calling in this life, that we might be faithful servants to you. Bless us and keep us now. Grant us your spirit's help. We humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1515, Niccolo Machiavelli sent a lengthy essay that he'd written to Lorenzo de' Medici as a solicitation for a government post in Florence, Italy. The de' Medici's having recently been given back power, the power to rule, the power of rule in the city. Machiavelli's work, which wasn't published in book form until after his death, was entitled The Prince and only circulated in manuscript form during his lifetime. The Prince is basically a handbook giving advice on how to be a successful prince. And Machiavelli essentially comes out and says that the Christian principles idealized in the society of his day would never prove to be ultimately successful. In fact, in many respects, the Prince encourages the opposite of the virtues for leaders explicitly taught or exemplified in Scripture. The effects of Machiavelli's work are still seen and felt today as the Principles he set forth are evidence in works related to power politics of government and business. The prince essentially sets forth the use of any means possible to achieve the desired end of rule and control. It conveys a hopeless view of man, that there is no redemption or regeneration possible, and God is quite distant from the daily order of human society, even stating, God does not want to do everything himself and take away from us our free will and our share of the glory which belongs to us. A French Huguenot, Innocent Gentilet, blamed Machiavelli's influence for the infamous St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572. The Pope, uh, the Pope banned the prince early on, and Shakespeare's Iago in Othello is Machiavellian. In fact, the murderous Machiavel is mentioned over 400 times in Eliz- Elizabethan drama alone. 
Opinions of the prince range widely, and there's some real debate as to whether Machiavelli's work should be read in all seriousness, but there are plenty who have. 20th century English philosopher Bertrand Russell called the prince a handbook for gangsters. Hitler's ally, Italian fascist dictator Mussolini, simply took the book at face value as a handbook to rule by, thereby seemingly confirming Russell's conclusion. Modern scholar Ernst Cassier believed Machiavelli's ethic did not find its full hideous flowering until the modern totalitarian Nazi and communist states developed the techniques for enormous political crimes like the gas chamber and the gulag. But this has not stopped modern Western businessmen from regularly quoting Machiavelli as a source of wisdom for how to get ahead in business. Famous business magazine uh, Forbes uh, in recent years uh, on their website cited Machiavelli in their quote of the month. He who is the cause of another's advancement is thereby the cause of his own ruin. In a section of the prince entitled, How Princes Should Honor Their Word, Machiavelli writes, Contemporary experience shows that princes who have achieved great things have been those who have given their word lightly, who have known how to trick men with their cunning, and who in the end have overcome those abiding by honest principles. Machiavelli promotes five qualities for a prince to have. Compassion, good faith, integrity, kindness, and religion. But states, a prince need not necessarily have all the good qualities I mentioned, but he should certainly appear to have them. Then later he writes, the prince should not deviate from what is good if that is possible, but he should know how to do evil if that is necessary. And also this, a prince then must be very careful not to say a word which does not seem inspired by the five qualities I mentioned earlier. To those seeing and hearing him, he should appear a man of compassion, a man of good faith, a man of integrity, a kind and a religious man. And there's nothing so important as to seem to have this last quality. Well, 500 years later, this rings surprisingly modern, doesn't it? We live in a society well-versed in Machiavellian thought, uh, a culture in which the ends justifies the means of appearing to be one thing while really another, of being willing to say whatever anyone wants to hear, of giving their word lightly in order to wriggle out from under it if necessary. But how does the prince stand up against the prince of peace? How does Machiavelli and his worldview of God and man and ethics compare to God's word and what scripture has to say about how a prince is to rule. Well, they're quite different, aren't they? Practically polar opposites. Machiavelli is promoting nothing more than ancient paganism. When you boil it all the way down, might makes right, the ends justifies the means, a low view of man and a self-serving ethic. But that's not the way of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, the King of Kings, has overturned that understanding of the world. And he's not distant from the political realm, but has much to say in his word about how society should be governed and ruled and how leaders should conduct themselves. And that pattern for leadership that we see in Jesus and have noted on many occasions over the years is seen all the way back in the book of Genesis, including the chapter before us this morning. Last week in chapter 42, we considered the matters of life and death set before Jacob and his sons and the test that Joseph set for his brothers. We noted how he wisely crafted their imprisonment and experience to parallel his own, taking them through a death and resurrection experience, and how Simeon, the secondborn, was sacrificed for them, and Benjamin, the secondborn, is required upon their return to Egypt. Joseph employs a strategy of righteous deception in order to bring about his brother's repentance, and we see that beginning to take effect. 
Chapter 43 picks up on the themes of life and death and continues the story, but is also the first part of a, a large section that reaches all the way through chapter 45. You know, if you want to get uh, the, the sweeping sense of the story, read chapters 43 to 45 in one shot. It's a highly structured text with the oath given and accepted in chapter 44, verses 7 through 10 as the center point. So chapter 43 begins this extended section related to the second journey to Egypt and the further testing that Joseph will cause his brothers to endure. And as we examine the events of this chapter, the theology of the text that comes forth is is interesting on a number of levels uh, and we'll consider it as we go. Even a theology of what it means to be a king and even a kingly people. Well, for our purposes today, we're going to break down the text into three major sections. And in verses 1 through 14, we see the emergence of Judah and the revival of Israel. Perhaps you recall from last week that chapter 42 ended with Jacob basically declaring that he disowned all of his sons except Benjamin, that the clan, the nation of Israel was a shattered mess, fraught with infighting and disunity. Well, a change appears to have begun to take place because you will notice that the writer refers to Jacob as their father, clearly in relationship to his sons. The famine is severe. They've eaten all of the grain that had, they'd acquired in Egypt, and now jo- Jacob instructs them to return and buy a little bit of food. The crisis seems to have drawn them together, and the pain has receded somewhat. And then in verse 2, we see the emergence of Judah as the leader of the brothers. Reuben is a failed and powerless firstborn, and now, someone out of the blue, Judah acts the part. Now, this is interesting in a couple of ways. First, recall that Judah spoke up back in chapter 37 and was the one who suggested they sell Joseph into slavery, and his brothers listened to him. Second, with Simeon out of the picture and Levi's guilt related to the incident with the Shechemites, Judah is the next in line to lead the brothers, so to speak. Yes, there's the incident with Tamar back in chapter 38. That's a bit of a black mark on his leadership resume. But his confession and repentance related to that indicated his turning again to righteousness. So Judah and Jacob are two, the two main characters in this opening section conversing with one another. And, well, Benjamin isn't referred to by name in the first ten verses. Six times he is called brother and often your brother. And once he is referred to as the lad or the boy a term used of young men who could be as old as 20 years of age. In verses 3 to 7, we're given some new details about the conversation the brothers had with Joseph when they were in Egypt. And Joseph is referred to as the man as he was in chapter 42. Joseph made it clear to the brothers that they would not see his face again unless his brother came back with them. And Joseph questioned them carefully about their father and brothers. And then notice the importance of what is conveyed in verses 8 and 9. And what Judah says there, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Judah's basically speaking back to his father what Jacob declared in chapter 42 and verse 2 upon ordering them to Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Judah's showing a measure of wisdom in repeating these words to Jacob and also by appealing to the fact that they have to take Benjamin with them in order to get the grain. And if Jacob doesn't want to see his grandchildren die, then this is the only way. And then verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. 
If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. I want you to saying here. Well, basically, my life for Benjamin's. He's offering to die for Benjamin. This contrasts profoundly with Reuben's offer, kill my two sons if I fail. Judah offers to die on behalf of another. And this is a significant turning point because Judah is displaying the makings of a king. In the biblical economy for things, a man is only fit to be king when he's willing to lay down his life for another. When he's willing to serve in this fashion, then he's made ready to rule. Judah is is setting himself forth as a protector of the seed, as Benjamin's guardian. He's showing an understanding for God's ways, for his covenant promises and the importance of them. Well, Israel, their father, sees the reasoning behind Judah's words and agrees to them. But then notice what he proposes in verses 10 to 12, that the brothers take a present to the man. The word translated present or gift is the Hebrew word minka, which we have, which we have typically translated as tribute. A tribute is something offered to a king. And in what other context have we studied this word? Well, most recently, it's the same word used at the present, the tribute that Jacob sent to Esau upon his return to the promised land, as recorded in Genesis 32 to 33. Also, we're familiar with this word tribute from our past studies in Leviticus and the tribute offering that Israel offered in worship. And what does the tribute offering symbolize? even as now pictured in our tithes and offerings. The labor of our hands, the produce of our taking dominion of the land. To whom does the land belong? Jesus, our King. And so we bring our tributes to Him just as Israel brought their tributes to Yahweh. And remember, the tribute offering never stood alone, but was always accompanied by a bloody sacrifice even as our tributes are accepted in Christ, our sacrifice. But the fact that Israel is counseling Judah and his brothers to take a tribute back to Joseph indicates what? That they view him as a king, as a ruler. And the tribute is sixfold, made up of balm, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachios, and almonds. And sevenfold if you include the silver that they also take for payment. Interestingly enough, three of the items, the gum, balm, and myrrh, were part of the cargo of the Ishmaelites from Gilead were carrying on their camels, mentioned back in chapter 37, verse 25. These items were known for their healing properties, and so symbolically Joseph was going down to Egypt for the purpose of healing. Now these items accompany the brothers, who are also going down to Egypt and going under the, under the duress, as did Joseph, even under the threat of slavery or imprisonment. Once again, once again, the brothers are undergoing a parallel experience, and this time Benjamin is included. And just in case you were wondering, this is the only mention of pistachios in all of Scripture. Furthermore, the silver they're taking back was three times the amount as before. At first glance, it might seem as though it's saying two times, but three times is probably the better reading, which reflects the, the amount for restitution. So the tribute and silver are prepared, and then at last Israel agrees for Benjamin to go in verse 13. And perhaps theologically, Benjamin is, Benjamin is the, the sacrifice, not so unlike Isaac was for Abraham back in chapter 22. See, the test for Israel is similar here, isn't it? But I want you to notice something in this section, and you probably picked up on it already, but Jacob is not called Jacob, he's called Israel. What might that indicate? Well, first, that there's some measure of restoration of the community. Jacob and his sons and their families are a people again. 
point we noted already. But secondly, remember that Israel is Jacob's wrestling name, his name of victory received at Peniel back in chapter 32, that he's God's wrestler. It's the name of the man of faith who suffered and who endured wrestlings with Esau and Laban for years and who sought the Lord in prayer and was vindicated by him. Here in chapter 43, we see that Jacob, that Israel emerging again, even as he moves from the fear expressed in chapter 42 to the faith he exhibits in sending Benjamin to Egypt under Judah's protective care. And in verse 14, he declares, El Shaddai, God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children... I am bereaved. And Jacob's use of the name El Shaddai is interesting, especially in the context of Genesis. It's a name used often. It's a name used often, and the exact, excuse me, it isn't a name used often, and the exact meaning of Shaddai is unknown. But it always occurs in connection with descendants. In 17 chapter 1, it is El Shaddai who initiates the covenant of circumcision with Abraham directly related to his seed. In 28.3, Isaac calls for El Shaddai to bless Jacob, that he might be fruitful and multiply. In 35.11, El Shaddai appears to Jacob, declaring his name to be Israel, and that he be fruitful and multiply. We have the name used here in 43.14, and then later in chapter 48.3 and 49.25. What does this name indicate? That God is the Mighty One who initiates the future and takes care of children. If the name Yahweh means promise keeper, then El Shaddai is the one who is all-powerful and can be absolutely trusted to bring about the promises that he's made. Jacob Israel received this blessing from El Shaddai, and now he's passing it on to his sons as they depart for Egypt. And I don't think we're to take Jacob's final statement in verse 14 as faithless resignation, but as faithfully committing his circumstances to God. Well, that brings us to the second portion of our text this morning in verses 15 to 25, the provision in Joseph's house. Verse 15 acts as a transition verse and a summary statement. And they took the tribute and money in hand. But notice how the brothers are referenced, the man, uh, the men. And this is how they're spoken of throughout the rest of the chapter. They're not called the brothers, but the men. What might that indicate? That what's taking place here isn't just a matter of between brothers, but societies. These men, representative of Israel, go stand before Joseph the man of Egypt. And we're told that Joseph saw Benjamin and then instructed the man overseeing his house to bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men to dine with him at noon. Notice a couple of details. First, there's bloodshed. An animal is killed as sacrificed for a meal. Is this the necessary bloodshed in order for the tribute, the minka, to be received. Also notice that the word house is used some seven times in these verses. And then two more times in verse 26. So it's no small matter that the men are invited into Joseph's house. In fact, this contrasts sharply with their treatment the first time they visited, doesn't it? Accused of being spies and then thrown into prison for three days, what's going on now? The, the, the invitation unsettles them. Joseph gives the one overseeing his house the instructions. They're carried out as commanded. And interestingly enough, this anonymous servant is referred to as the man in verses 17 and 24. 
perhaps we're to understand that he's the representative man for Joseph, the man. So the men are brought to Joseph's house, but they're still driven largely by guilt, and they're suspicious of what's going on. They're protect, they're, they're projecting on Joseph something they might do. Betray their guests, steal their donkeys, and they're convinced this is the case because of not paying for their food the first time. So they approached the servant in charge of Joseph's house, and notice where they spoke to him. At the door of the house. What's significant about that? Well, in part, doorways are places for judgments to be rendered, but it's also the place where blood is shed and is the point of entry into God's presence. As one pastor observes, For the Passover you put blood on the doorposts. In the tabernacle the blood is shed and displayed at the door. The door is where your drawing near to God in order to eat with Him begins. Even more, the text literally says that the men drew near, which is explicitly used elsewhere of drawing near to God in worship. When the men draw near, what do they do? What they think they need to do. They confess. And in their confession, they're seeking to restore what they believe to be the perceived wrong that they've done and that they've brought the money back. See, what we're seeing here is a picture of things to come in the worshiping life of Israel after the Exodus. And while you might not see the first time you read through this chapter, the parallels are too unmistakable to ignore. Remember, priests were palace servants. And that's how Joseph's servant is acting in this exchange with the men, with Joseph's brothers. He's not doing anything innovative, but simply what he's been told to do by Joseph, the king, in whose house he serves. That's what the priest did in relation to Yahweh in his house, first the tabernacle, then later the temple. The brothers state two times, we have brought our money in our hand. And what does Joseph's house servant say in response? Peace to you. Shalom. Don't be afraid. You know, those are theologically rich and profound things to say, aren't they? And clearly he's in the know of what Joseph is doing, even in his truthful but clever reply, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. Yes, this was Joseph's doing, but God used Joseph to give them their money back. El Shaddai is orchestrating these events. And then his next statement, your silver came to me. He's not talking about the silver they just brought with them. No, the implication is that payment has been made for the grain they, they bought. Who paid for it? Joseph did. Then what happens next? Simeon is brought out of prison. He's released because they brought Benjamin as commanded. And the text doesn't tell us anything about the brothers' reunion with one another. But then we read that the man brought them into Joseph's house, gave them water, and then washed their feet. That's symbolic of cleansing, even the cleansing of sin. Remember the imagery. The ground was cursed as a result of Adam's fall. And when men walk on the ground, especially if they're wearing sandals, their feet got dirty, picturing the effects of sin and the ongoing battle against it. That's what was pictured in Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John 13. Servant fed the donkeys. He didn't try to steal them. And then the men prepared their tribute for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread there. Now, the fact that the meal was to take place at noon is mentioned two times, but the significance of that time isn't abundantly clear, at least not to me. One pastor suggests that noon is the brightest time of day, so there's the most light. Light time is a time of judgment. Light exposes the darkness. This is what happens on the Lord's Day or the Day of the Lord. This feast will be a time of testing and judgment for these brothers. That's probably as good as guess as any. And if, and if you have any insights about it, let me know. But, but step back and look at what the brothers receive 
but provision is made for them in Joseph's house. It's mercy. The very thing that Israel prayed on their behalf is coming to pass. They're being offered peace, something that's undeserved from Joseph. And although there's still a fuller confession of sin for them to make, nevertheless, we see that they're headed in the right direction. And so they readied their tribute for Joseph. The hands that were raised up against him in chapter 37 now bring him gifts and will also eat bread with him. And that fact also stands in sharp contrast with how the brothers treated him in chapter 37. They'd just thrown him into the, into the cistern, into the pit. And then what do we read in verse 25? Then they sat down to eat bread. Well, this brings us to the final section this morning in verses 26 to 34, the feast at Joseph's table. Verse 26. When Joseph came to the house, they brought into the house to him the tribute that they had in their hand and bowed down to him to the ground. Again, they're bowing in fulfillment. God's revelation through Joseph's dreams back in chapter 37. They bow again in verse 28. Joseph asked about their father, wondering if he is well, and they reply that he's still alive. Then Joseph lift up, lifts, lifts up his eyes upon Benjamin, inquires of his identity, but doesn't wait for a reply and pronounces blessing upon him. For Joseph to call Benjamin my son is formal language, but it's also to refer to him in kingly language. For all intents and purposes, Joseph is the king in the story. To be the son of the king is to stand in line for the throne. Benjamin, the son of my right hand, the one to whom the inheritance of rule belongs, is initially being exalted here. Joseph is exalting Benjamin. And isn't it interesting how differently the brothers are being treated this time in Egypt because Benjamin is with them. Well, Joseph hurried out because his compassion grew warm for his brother. Word translated compassion. It's the same word translated mercy back in verse 14. Joseph really is showing compassion and mercy to his brothers. El Shaddai really is answering Jacob's prayer on their behalf. So Joseph goes to his chamber and weeps and then he has to wash his face if he was wearing the black mascara that was common, this makes all the more sense. And it's interesting to note uh, in this account that you have waters from above coming from Joseph's eyes and waters below, the waters used to wash the brothers' feet. But then where do they meet? In the middle at a table. Well, having composed himself, Joseph gives the order to serve the bread. Joseph is the source of bread in Genesis. He is the bread of life. And Joseph kept the custom that was well known that Egyptians wouldn't eat with foreigners. Joseph keeps his righteous deception intact. But he gives the brothers something even more to think about, doesn't he? Yes, he has them seated perfectly in order of their birth from oldest to youngest. And we should understand that their amazement has an element of fear in it. They were 11 sons born of four different mothers. But somehow... While eating in the Egyptian's man, uh, Egyptian man's house, they were placed in the correct order. What kind of supernatural powers might this man have? What powers of divination? But then Benjamin is exalted again when he receives five times what the other brothers received. Five is the number of power. So Joseph is symbolically bestowing power and authority upon Benjamin. In other words, Joseph is treating Benjamin in similar fashion to how Jacob treated Joseph thereby setting up a parallel experience for Benjamin and another test for the brothers. How will they treat Benjamin when the test comes? Well, we'll have to wait until the next chapter to find out. But notice the last line. 
and they drank and made merry with him. The fact that they were merry means they drank a lot of wine. You might recall that this is the same word used to describe Noah in Genesis 9.21. And as Noah was not sinfully drunk, neither are Joseph and his brothers. But notice what Joseph offers at his table. Bread and wine. Of course, Jesus offers us the same, doesn't he? He gives us bread for food. And he gives us wine to make us joyful. Grape juice can't do that, by the way. And this is further evidence that the Lord's Supper and the fellowship around the table is to be joyful and not funeral-like. The table isn't a time for introspection or personal prayer or for reading 1 Corinthians 11. No, it's a time to celebrate the peace and mercy that has been lavished upon us, that the payment of the debt owed has been satisfied. How much more reason do we have to be married for what Jesus our King has accomplished and provided for us? In Luke 15, the parable of the lost son, Jesus appears to draw on the imagery from this account in Genesis 43. And doesn't this account and that story embody so much of our own experience or how we often feel? Afraid, getting it wrong, misunderstanding the Lord's mercies to us. We don't always do a good job of confessing our sins, do we? In fact, we, can, we can't perfectly confess all our sins because there are sins that we commit that we, we're not even aware of. But the Lord shows us mercy in that too, doesn't He? He has shown us great compassion and continues to show us compassion. And think of the extravagant lengths to which the Father in the parable goes to celebrate the return of the lost son, the son who'd squandered a fortune. What is the order to be done? Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And isn't the father in the parable a picture of our heavenly father? And hasn't he bestowed upon us such lavish, lavish gifts? Even in the sacrifice of his only son, our Lord Jesus Christ, whose flesh we eat and whose blood we drink. Isn't it with this extravagant father whom we're invited to eat and celebrate with each and every week as we partake of the bread and wine? Brothers and sisters, don't make little of this. Don't think, well, I've done this before, or I had communion last week, I'm okay, or, well, there's always next week. No, don't take it for granted. And be sure you have a legitimate reason to be absent from such a feast. If you're ho-hum, if you're indifferent or apathetic about the greater Joseph's table, then check your heart and repent and eagerly come to celebrate the great compassion and mercy that is yours. What's more, let us also see that El Shaddai, the God of the patriarchs, is also our God. God is still the one who takes care of the future, the future that includes our children. And for some of you, the day when your children leave home may seem far away in the future but will likely come sooner than you expect, as any parent with older children can attest. And we, like Israel, send them out when they leave home under God's protective care and under the same promises and blessings that we've received. And remember, that's the goal for, for parenting, for our children to grow up and mature, for them to become adults, for them to become kings and queens who go out into the world to take dominion, to rule and subdue the earth in keeping with God's original design 
for Adam and Eve at the creation of the world, which Jesus, the second Adam, has put back on its proper course in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit. We seek to cultivate that thinking, that identity in our children, that they may be all the more sure of who they are and who they're called to be according to God's word and in keeping with his promises. And in a day and an age that has many of the trappings and thinking of ancient paganism, a day and age governed by the same spirit expressed in Machiavelli's The Prince, let us be resolved by faith to heed the words and patterns set before us by Judah and Joseph, but still more Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Let us embrace our identity as sons and daughters of our King, the King of Kings, and give ourselves to the life of service, the life of sacrifice, of being willing to say, my life for yours, for which the world, by which the world is conquered. And as we behold Jesus and Joseph and the service he renders to us, most evidently in worship and at his table, let us come to his table for bread and wine to make merry with him and receive the abundant portions so that we might receive further strength and courage for this life as kings. Let us pray. O God, from whom comes every good and perfect gift, grant unto us all, but especially unto all young men and women, that they may be worthy of their heritage. Quicken their minds in the desire for knowledge and their hearts in the love of virtue. Deliver them from fear of that which is new and from scorn of that which is old. Lead them forward in the spirit of understanding and confirm them in the confidence that all truth is for their good and to your glory. Out of weakness, give them strength. Support them in the time of temptation. Help them to do your work with good courage and continue your faithful soldiers and servants unto their life's end. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.